Section 28 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 28. Place Names. The Name. Among the rooms which used most commonly to take shape in my mind during my long nights of sleeplessness, there was none that differed more utterly from the rooms at Combray, thickly powdered with the motes of an atmosphere granular, pollenous, edible and instinct with piety, than my room in the Grand Hotel de la Plage at Balbec, the walls of which, washed with rippling, contained like the polished sides of a basin in which the water glows with a blue lurking fire a finer air pure azure-tinted saline the bavarian upholsterer who had been entrusted with the furnishing of this hotel had varied his scheme of decoration in different rooms and in that which i found myself occupying had set against the walls on three sides of it a series of low bookcases with glass fronts in which according to where they stood by law of nature which he had perhaps forgotten to take into account was reflected this or that section of the ever-changing view of the sea so that the walls were lined with a frieze of seascapes interrupted only by the polished mahogany of the actual shelves and so effective was this that the whole room had the appearance of one of those model bedrooms which you see nowadays in housing exhibitions decorated with works of art which are calculated by the designer to refresh the eyes of whoever may ultimately have to sleep in the rooms the subjects being kept in some degree of harmony with the locality and surroundings of the houses for which the rooms are planned and yet nothing could have differed more utterly either from the real baalbek than that other baalbek of which i had often dreamed on stormy days, when the wind was so strong that Françoise, as she took me to the Champs-Élysées, would warn me not to walk too near the side of the street, or I might have my head knocked off by a falling slate, and would recount to me, with many lamentations, the terrible disasters and shipwrecks that were reported in the newspaper. I longed for nothing more than to behold a storm at sea, less as a mighty spectacle, than as a momentary revelation of the true life of nature or rather there were for me no mighty spectacles save those which i knew to be not artificially composed for my entertainment but necessary and unalterable the beauty of landscapes or of great works of art i was not curious i did not thirst to know anything save what i believed to be more genuine than myself what had for me the supreme merit of showing me a fragment of the mind of a great genius or of the force or the grace of nature as she appeared when left entirely to herself without human interference just as the lovely sound of her voice reproduced all by itself upon the phonograph could never console a man for the loss of his mother so a mechanical imitation of a storm would have left me as cold as did the illuminated fountains at the exhibition. I required also, if the storm was to be absolutely genuine, 
that the shore from which I watched it should be a natural shore, not an embankment recently constructed by a municipality. Besides, nature, by all the feelings that she aroused in me, seemed to me the most opposite thing in the world to the mechanical inventions of mankind. The less she bore their imprint, the more room she offered for the expansion of my heart. And, as it happened, I had preserved the name of Baalbek, which Le Grand Anne had cited to us as that of a seaside place in the very midst of that funereal coast, famed for the number of its wrecks, swathed for six months in the year in a shroud of fog and flying foam from the waves. You feel there, below your feet still, he had told me, far more even than at Finisterre, and even though hotels are now being superimposed upon it, without power, however, to modify that oldest bone in the earth's skeleton, you feel there that you are actually at the land's end of France, of Europe, of the old world, and it is the ultimate encampment of the fishermen, precisely like the fishermen who have lived since the world's beginning, facing the everlasting kingdom of the sea-fogs and shadows of the night. One day, when at Combray I had spoken of this coast, this Baalbek, before Monsieur Swann, hoping to learn from him whether it was the best point to select for seeing the most violent storms, he had replied, I should think I did know Baalbek. The church at Baalbek, built in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, and still half Romanesque, is perhaps the most curious example to be found of our Norman Gothic and so exceptional that one is tempted to describe it as Persian in its inspiration. And that region, which until then had seemed to me to be nothing else than a part of immemorial nature, that had remained contemporaneous with the great phenomena of geology, and as remote from human history as the ocean itself, or the great bear, with its wild race of fishermen for whom, no more than for their whales, had there been any Middle Ages, it had been a great joy to me to see it suddenly take its place in the order of the centuries, with a stored consciousness of the Romanesque epoch, and to know that the Gothic trefoil had come to diversify those wild rocks also, at the appointed hour, like those frail but hardy plants which, in the polar regions, when the spring returns, scatter their stars about the eternal snows. And if Gothic art brought to those places and people a classification which, otherwise, they lacked, they too conferred one upon it in return. I tried to form a picture in my mind of how those fishermen had lived. The timid and unsuspected essay towards social intercourse which they had attempted there, clustered upon a promontory of the shores of hell, at the foot of the cliffs of death, and Gothic art seemed to me a more living thing now that, detaching it from the towns in which, until then, I had always imagined it, I could see how, in a particular instance, upon a reef of savage rocks, it had taken root and grown until it flowered in a tapering spire. I was taken to see reproductions of the most famous of the statues at Baalbek. Shaggy, blunt-faced apostles, the virgin from the porch, and I could scarcely breathe for joy at the thought that I might myself, one day, see them take a solid form against their eternal background of salt fog. 
thereafter on dear tempestuous february nights the wind breathing into my heart which it shook no less violently than the chimney of my bedroom the project of a visit to balbec blended in me the desire for gothic architecture with that for a storm upon the sea i should have liked to take the very next day the good the generous train at one twenty two of which never without a palpitating heart could I read, in the railway company's bills, or in advertisements of circular tours, the hour of departure. It seemed to me to cut, at a precise point in every afternoon, a most fascinating groove, a mysterious mark, from which the diverted hours still led one on, of course, towards evening, towards tomorrow morning, but to an evening and morning which one would behold, not in Paris, but in one of those towns through which the train passed, and among which it allowed one to choose, for it stopped at Bayeux, at Coutances, at Vitre, at Questembert, at Pontorson, at Balbec, at Lannion, at Lamballe, at Benodet, at Pontervon, at Quimpel, and progressed magnificently surcharged with names which it offered me, so that among them all I did not know which to choose, so impossible was it to sacrifice any. But even without waiting for the train next day, I could, by rising and dressing myself with all speed, leave Paris that very evening, should my parents permit, and arrive at Balbec, as dawn spread westward over the raging sea, from whose driven foam I would seek shelter in that church in the Persian manor. But at the approach of the Easter holidays, when my parents had promised to let me spend them for once in the north of Italy, lo, in place of those dreams of tempests by which I had been entirely possessed, not wishing to see anything but waves dashing in from all sides, mounting always higher, upon the wildest of coasts, beside churches as rugged and precipitous as cliffs, in whose towers the sea-birds would be wailing, suddenly, effacing them, taking away all their charm, excluding them because they were its opposite, and could only have weakened its effect, was substituted in me the converse dream of the most variegated of springs, not the spring of Combray, still pricking with all the needle-points of the winter's frost, but that which already covered with lilies and anemones the meadows of Fiesole, and gave Florence a dazzling golden background, like those in Fra Angelico's pictures. From that moment only sunlight, perfumes, colours, seemed to me to have any value, for this alternation of images had effected a change of front in my desire, and, as abrupt as those that occur sometimes in music, a complete change of tone in my sensibility. Thus it came about that a mere atmospheric variation, would be sufficient to provoke in me that modulation, without there being any need for me to await the return of a season. For often we find a day, in one, that has strayed from another season, and makes us live in that other, summons at once into our presence, and makes us long for its peculiar pleasures, and interrupts the dreams that we were in process of weaving, by inserting, out of its turn, too early or too late, this leaf, torn from another chapter in the interpolated calendar of happiness. But soon it happened that, like those natural phenomena from which our comfort or our health can derive but an accidental 
and all to modest benefit, until the day when science takes control of them, and producing them at will, places in our hands the power to order their appearance, withdrawn from the tutelage and independent of the consent of chance. Similarly, the production of these dreams of the Atlantic and of Italy ceased to depend entirely upon the changes of the seasons and of the weather. I need only, to make them reappear, pronounce the names Balbec, Venice, Florence, within whose syllables had gradually accumulated all the longing inspired in me by the places for which they stood. Even in spring, to come in a book upon the name of Balbec, suffice to awaken in me the desire for storms at sea and for the Norman Gothic. Even on a stormy day, the name of Florence or of Venice would awaken the desire for sunshine, for lilies, for the palace of the Doges, and for Santa Maria del Fiore. But if their names thus permanently absorbed the image that I had formed of these towns, it was only by transforming that image by subordinating its reappearance in me to their own special laws, and in consequence of this they made it more beautiful, but at the same time more different from anything that the towns of Normandy or Tuscany could in reality be, and by increasing the arbitrary delights of my imagination, aggravated the disenchantment that was in store for me when I set out upon my travels. They magnified the idea that I formed of certain points on the earth's surface, making them more special and in consequence more real. I did not then represent to myself towns, landscapes, historic buildings, as pictures more or less attractive, cut out here and there of a substance that was common to them all, but looked on each of them as on an unknown thing different from all the rest, a thing for which my soul was athirst, by the knowledge of which it would benefit. How much more individual still was the character that they assumed from being designated by names, names that were only for themselves, proper names such as people have. Words present to us little pictures of things, lucid and normal, like the pictures that are hung on the walls of schoolrooms to give children an illustration of what is meant by a carpenter's bench, a bird, an anthill. Things chosen as typical of everything else of the same sort. But names present to us of persons and of towns which they accustom us to regard as individual, as unique, like persons. A confused picture which draws from the names, from the brightness or darkness of their sound, the colour in which it is uniformly painted, like one of those posters, entirely blue or entirely red, in which, on account of the limitations imposed by the process used in their reproduction, or by a whim on the designer's part, are blue or red not only the sky and the sea, but the ships and the church and the people in the streets, the name of Palmer, one of the towns that I most longed to visit after reading the Chartreuse, seemed to me compact and glossy, violet-tinted, soft. If any one were to speak of such or such a house in Palmer, 
in which I should be lodged, he would give me the pleasure of thinking that I was to inhabit a dwelling that was compact and glossy, violet-tinted, soft, and that bore no relation to the houses in any other town in Italy, since I could imagine it only by the aid of that heavy syllable of the name of Palma, in which no breath of air stirred, and of all that I had made it assume, of Stontalian sweetness, and the reflected hue of violets. And when I thought of Florence, it was of a town miraculously embalmed and flower-like, since it was called the City of the Lilies, and its cathedral Our Lady of the Flower. As for Balbec, it was one of those names in which, as on an old piece of Norman pottery that still keeps the colour of the earth from which it was fashioned, one sees depicted still the representation of some long-abolished custom, of some feudal right, of the former condition of some place, of an obsolete way of pronouncing the language, which had shaped and wedded its incongruous syllables, and which I never doubted that I should find spoken there at once, even by the innkeeper who would pour me out coffee and milk on my arrival, taking me down to watch the turbulent sea, unchained before the church, to whom I lent the aspect, disputatious, solemn and medieval, of some character in one of the old romances. Had my health definitely improved, had my parents allowed me, if not actually to go down to stay at Balbec, at least to take, just once, so as to become acquainted with the architecture and landscapes of Normandy or of Brittany, that one twenty-two train into which I had so often clambered in imagination, I should have preferred to stop, and to alight from it, at the most beautiful of its towns. But in vain might I compare and contrast them. How was one to choose any more than between individual people, who are not interchangeable, between Bayeux, so lofty in its noble coronet of rusty lace, whose highest point caught the light of the old gold of its second syllable. Vitre, whose acute accent barred its ancient glass with wooden lozenges. Gentle Lambal, whose whiteness ranged from eggshell yellow to a pearly grey. Coutances, a Norman cathedral which its final consonants, rich and yellowing, crowned with a tower of butter. Lanyon, with the rumble and buzz in the silence of its village street, of the fly on the wheel of the coach. Questembert, Pontosson, ridiculously silly and simple, white feathers and yellow beaks strewn along the road to those well-watered and poetic spots. Benedet, a name scarcely moored that seemed to be striving to draw the river down into the tangle of its seaweeds. Pontavon, the snowy, rosy flight of the wing of a lightly poised coif, tremulously reflected in the greenish waters of a canal. Quimperlay, more firmly attached to this, and since the Middle Ages, among the rivulets with which it babbled, threading their pearls upon a grey background, like the pattern made through the cobwebs upon a window, by rays of sunlight changed into blunt points of tarnished silver. These images were false, for another reason also, namely that they were necessarily much simplified. Doubtless the object to which my imagination aspired 
which my senses took in but incompletely and without any immediate pleasure, I had committed to the safe custody of names. Doubtless, because I had accumulated there a store of dreams, those names now magnetized my desires. But names themselves are not very comprehensive. The most that I could do was to include in each of them two or three of the principal curiosities of the town, which could lie there side by side, without interval or partition. In the name of Baalbek, as in the magnifying glasses set in those penholders which one buys at seaside places, I could distinguish waves surging round a church built in the Persian manner. Perhaps, indeed, the enforced simplicity of these images was one of the reasons for the hold that they had over me. When my father had decided one year that we should go for the Easter holidays to Florence and Venice, not finding room to introduce into the name of Florence the elements that ordinarily constitute a town, I was obliged to let a supernatural city emerge from the impregnation by certain vernal scenes of what I supposed to be, in its essentials, the genius of Giotto. All the more, and because one cannot make a name extend much further in time than in space, like some of Giotto's paintings themselves, which show us at two separate moments the same person engaged in different actions, here lying on his bed, there just about to mount his horse, the name of Florence was divided into two compartments. In one, beneath an architectural dais, I gazed upon a fresco over which was partly drawn a curtain of morning sunlight, dusty, aslant, and gradually spreading. In the other, for, since I thought of names not as an inaccessible ideal, but as a real and enveloping substance into which I was about to plunge, the life not yet lived, the life intact and pure which I enclosed in them, gave to the most material pleasures, to the simplest scenes, the same attraction that they have in the works of the primitives. I moved swiftly, so as to arrive as soon as might be at the table that was spread for me, with fruit and a flask of Chianti, across a Ponte Vecchio heaped with jonquils, narcissi, and anemones. That, for all that I was still in Paris, was what I saw, and not what was actually round about me. Even from the simplest, the most realistic point of view, the countries for which we long occupy, at any given moment, a far larger place in our true life than the country in which we may happen to be. Doubtless, if at that time I had paid more attention to what was in my mind when I pronounced the words going to Florence, to Parma, to Pisa, to Venice, I should have realised that what I saw was in no sense a town, but something as different from anything that I knew, something as delicious as might be for a human race whose whole existence had passed in a series of late winter afternoons. That inconceivable marvel! a morning in spring. These images, unreal, fixed, always alike, filling all my nights and days, differentiated this period in my life from those which had gone before it, and might easily have been confused with it by an observer who saw things only from without, that is to say, who saw nothing. As in an opera, a fresh melody introduces a novel atmosphere which one could never have suspected if one had done no more than read the libretto, 
still less if one had remained outside the theatre, counting only the minutes as they passed. And besides, even from the point of view of mere quantity, in our life the days are not all equal. To reach the end of a day, natures that are slightly nervous, as mine was, make use, like motor-cars, of different speeds. There are mountainous, uncomfortable days up which one takes an infinite time to pass, and days downward-sloping, through which one can go at full tilt, singing as one goes. During this month, in which I went laboriously over, as over a tune, though never to my satisfaction, these visions of Florence, Venice, Pisa, from which the desire that they excited in me drew and kept something as profoundly personal as if it had been love, love for another person, I never ceased to believe that they corresponded to a reality independent of myself, and they made me conscious of as glorious a hope as could have been cherished by a Christian in the primitive age of faith on the eve of his entry into paradise. Moreover, without my paying any heed to the contradiction that there was in my wishing to look at and to touch with my organs of sense what had been elaborated by the spell of my dreams and not perceived by my senses at all, though all the more tempting to them, in consequence, more different from anything that they knew, it was that which recalled to me the reality of these visions, which inflamed my desire all the more by seeming to hint a promise that my desire should be satisfied. And for all that the motive force of my exaltation was a longing for aesthetic enjoyments, the guide-books ministered even more to it than books on aesthetics, and, more again than the guide-books, the railway timetables. What moved me was the thought that this Florence which I could see, so near and yet inaccessible, in my imagination, if the tract which separated it from me, in myself, was not one that I might cross, could yet be reached by a circuit, by a digression, were I to take the plain terrestrial path. When I repeated myself, giving thus a special value to what I was going to see, that Venice was the school of Giorgione, the home of Titian, the most complete museum of the domestic architecture of the Middle Ages. I felt happy indeed, as I was even more when, on one of my walks, as I stepped out briskly on account of the weather, which, after several days of a precocious spring, had relapsed into winter, like the weather that we had invariably found awaiting us at Combray in Holy Week seeing upon the boulevards that the chestnut trees though plunged in a glacial atmosphere that soaked through them like a stream of water were none the less beginning punctual guests arrayed already for the party and admitting no discouragement to shape and chisel and curve in its frozen lumps the irrepressible verdure whose steady growth the abortive power of the cold might hinder but could not succeed in restraining I reflected that already the Ponte Vecchio was heaped high with an abundance of hyacinths and anemones, and that the spring sunshine was already tinging the waves of the Grand Canal with so dusky an azure, with emeralds so splendid that when they washed and were broken against the foot of one of Titian's paintings, they could vie with it in the richness of their colouring. I could no longer contain my joy when my father, in the intervals of tapping the barometer and complaining of the cold, 
began to look out which were the best trains, and when I understood that by making one's way, after luncheon, into the coal-grimed laboratory, the wizard's cell that undertook to contrive a complete transmutation of its surroundings, one could awaken next morning in the city of marble and gold, in which the building of the wall was of jasper, and the foundation of the wall an emerald, so that it and the city of the lilies were not just artificial scenes which I could set up at my pleasure in front of my imagination, but did actually exist at a certain distance from Paris, which must inevitably be traversed if I wished to see them at their appointed place on the earth's surface and at no other. In a word, they were entirely real. They became even more real to me when my father, by saying, well, you can stay in Venice from the 20th to the 29th and reach Florence on Easter morning, made them both emerge no longer only from the abstraction of space, but from that imaginary time in which we place not one merely, but several of our travels at once, which do not greatly tax us, since they are but possibilities, that time which reconstructs itself so effectively that one can spend it again in one town after one has already spent it in another and consecrated to them some of those actual calendar days which are certificates of the genuineness of what one does on them for those unique days are consumed by being used they do not return one cannot live them again here when one has lived them elsewhere I felt that it was towards the week that would begin with the Monday on which the laundress was to bring back the white waistcoat that I had stained with ink, that they were hastening to busy themselves with the duty of emerging from that ideal time in which they did not as yet exist, those two queen cities of which I was soon to be able, by the most absorbing kind of geometry, to inscribe the domes and towers on a page of my own life but I was still on the way, only, to the supreme pinnacle of happiness. I reached it finally, for not until then did the revelation burst upon me that on the clattering streets, reddened by the light reflected from Giorgione's frescoes, it was not, as I had, despite so many promptings, continued to imagine, the men, majestic and terrible as the sea, bearing armour that gleamed with bronze beneath the folds of their blood-red cloaks, would be walking in Venice next week on the Easter Vigil, but that I myself might be the minute personage whom, in an enlarged photograph of St. Mark's that had been lent to me, the operator had portrayed in a bowler hat in front of the portico. When I heard my father say, It must be pretty cold still on the Grand Canal. Whatever you do, don't forget to pack your winter greatcoat and your thick suit. At these words I was raised to a sort of ecstasy, a thing that I had until then deemed impossible. I felt myself to be penetrating indeed between those rocks of amethyst like a reef in the Indian Ocean. By a supreme muscular effort, a long way in excess of my real strength, stripping myself, as of a shell that served no purpose, of the air in my own room which surrounded me, I replaced it by an equal quantity of Venetian air, that marine atmosphere indescribable and peculiar as the atmosphere of the dreams which my imagination had secreted in the name of Venice, 
I could feel at work within me a miraculous disincarnation. It was at once accompanied by that vague desire to vomit which one feels when one has a very sore throat, and they had to put me to bed with a fever so persistent that the doctor not only assured my parents that a visit that spring to Florence and Venice was absolutely out of the question, but warned them that, even when I should have completely recovered, I must, for at least a year, give up all idea of travelling, and be kept from anything that was liable to excite me. And alas, he forbade also, most categorically, my being allowed to go to the theatre, to hear Burma. The sublime artist, whose genius Bergot had proclaimed, might, by introducing me to something else that was, perhaps, as important and as beautiful, have consoled me for not having been to Florence and Venice, for not going to Balbec. My parents had to be content with sending me, every day, to the Champs-Élysées, in the custody of a person who would see that I did not tire myself. This person was none other than Françoise, who had entered our service after the death of my aunt Léonie. Going to the Champs-Élysées I found unendurable. If only Bergot had described the place in one of his books, I should no doubt have longed to see and know it, like so many things else of which a simulacrum had first found its way into my imagination. That kept things warm, made them live, gave them personality, and I sought then to find their counterpart in reality. But in this public garden there was nothing that attached itself to my dreams. One day, as I was weary of our usual place, beside the wooden horses, Françoise had taken me for an excursion, across the frontier guarded at regular intervals by the little bastions of the barley-sugar women into those neighbouring but foreign regions, where the faces of the passers-by were strange, where the goat-carriage went past. Then she had gone away to lay down her things on a chair that stood with its back to a shrubbery of laurels. While I waited for her, I was pacing the broad lawn, of meagre close-cropped grass already faded by the sun, dominated at its far end by a statue rising from a fountain, in front of which a little girl, with reddish hair, was playing with a shuttlecock, when, from the path, another little girl, who was putting on her cloak and covering up her battledore, called out sharply, "'Good-bye, Gilberte. I'm going home now. Don't forget, we're coming to you this evening after dinner.' The name Gilberte passed close by me, evoking all the more forcibly her whom it labelled, in that it did not merely refer to her, as one speaks of a man in his absence, but was directly addressed to her. It passed thus close by me, in action, so to speak, with a force that increased with the curve of its trajectory, and as it drew near to its target. Carrying in its wake, I could feel, the knowledge, the impression of her to whom it was addressed, that belonged not to me, but to the friend who called to her, everything that, while she uttered the words, she more or less vividly reviewed, possessed in her memory, of their daily intimacy, of the visits that they paid to each other, of that unknown existence which was all the more inaccessible, all the more painful to me, from being, conversely, so familiar, 
so tractable to this happy girl who let her message brush past me without my being able to penetrate its surface, who flung it on the air with a light-hearted cry, letting float in the atmosphere the delicious attar which that message had distilled, by touching them with precision, from certain invisible points in Mademoiselle Swann's life, from the evening to come, as it would be, after dinner, at her home, forming, on its celestial passage through the midst of the children and their nursemaids, a little cloud, exquisitely coloured, like the cloud that, curling over one of Poussin's gardens, reflects minutely, like a cloud in the opera, teeming with chariots and horses, some apparition of the life of the gods, casting finally, on that ragged grass, at the spot on which she stood, at once a scrap of withered lawn, and a moment in the afternoon of the fair player, who continued to beat up and catch her shuttlecock, until a governess, with a blue feather in her hat, had caught her away. A marvellous little band of light, of the colour of heliotrope, spread over the lawn like a carpet, on which I could not tire of treading to and fro with lingering feet, nostalgic and profane, while Francoise shouted, "'Come on, button up your coat, look, and let's get away!' And I remarked for the first time how common her speech was, and that she had, alas, no blue feather in her hat. Only would she come again to the Champs-Élysées. Next day she was not there, but I saw her on the following days, I spent all my time revolving round the spot where she was at play with her friends, to such effect that once, when they found they were not enough to make up a prisoner's base, she sent one of them to ask me if I cared to complete their sight, and from that day I played with her whenever she came. But this did not happen every day. There were days when she had been prevented from coming by her lessons, by her catechism, by a luncheon party, by the whole of that life, separated from my own, which twice only, condensed into the name of Gilberte, I had felt pass so painfully close to me, in the Hawthorne Lane near Combray, and on the grass of the Champs-Élysées. On such days she would have told us beforehand that we should not see her. If it were because of her lessons, she would say, it is too tiresome. I shan't be able to come to-morrow. You will all be enjoying yourselves here without me. With an air of regret, which to some extent consoled me. If, on the other hand, she had been invited to a party, and I, not knowing this, asked her whether she was coming to play with us, she would reply, Indeed, I hope not. Indeed, I hope Mamma will let me go to my friends. But on these days... I did at least know that I should not see her, whereas on others, without any warning, her mother would take her for a drive or some such thing, and next day she would say, Oh yes, I went out with Mamma," as though it had been the most natural thing in the world, and not the greatest possible misfortune for someone else. There were also the days of bad weather, on which her governess, afraid on her own account of the rain, would not bring Gilberte to the Champs-Élysées. And so, if the heavens were doubtful, from early morning I would not cease to interrogate them, 
observing all the omens. If I saw the lady opposite, just inside her window, putting on her hat, I would say to myself, that lady is going out. It must therefore be weather in which one can go out. Why should not Gilbert do the same as that lady? But the day grew dark. My mother said that it might clear again, that one burst of sunshine would be enough, but that more probably it would rain, and if it rained, of what use would it be to go to the Champs-Élysées? And so, from breakfast time, my anxious eyes never left the uncertain, clouded sky. It remained dark. Outside the window the balcony was grey. Suddenly, on its sullen stone, I did not indeed see a less negative colour, but I felt, as it were, an effort towards a less negative colour, the pulsation of a hesitating grey that struggled to discharge its light. A moment later, the balcony was as pale and luminous as a standing water at dawn, and a thousand shadows from the ironwork of its balustrade had come to rest on it. A breath of wind dispersed them, the stone grew dark again, but, like tamed creatures, they returned. They began imperceptibly to grow lighter, and by one of those continuous crescendos, such as, in music, at the end of an overture, carry a single note to the extreme fortissimo, making it pass rapidly through all the intermediate stages, I saw it attain to that fixed, unalterable gold of fine days on which the sharply cut shadows of the wrought iron of the balustrade were outlined in black like a capricious vegetation, with a fineness in the delineation of their smallest details, which seemed to indicate a deliberate application, an artist's satisfaction, and with so much relief, so velvety a bloom in the restfulness of their sombre and happy mass, that in truth those large and leafy shadows which lay reflected on that lake of sunshine seemed aware that they were pledges of happiness and peace of mind. Brief, fading ivy, climbing fugitive flora, the most colourless, the most depressing to many minds, of all that creep on walls or decorate windows, to me the dearest of them all, from the day when it appeared upon our balcony, like the very shadow of the presence of Gilbert, who was perhaps already in the Champs-Élysées, and as soon as I arrived there would greet me with, Let's begin at once, you're on my side. Frail, swept away by a breath, but at the same time in harmony, not with the season, with the hour, a promise of that immediate pleasure which the day will deny or fulfil, and thereby of the one paramount immediate pleasure, the pleasure of loving and of being loved, more soft, more warm upon the stone than even mosses, alive, a ray of sunshine sufficing for its birth and for the birth of joy, even in the heart of winter. And on those days when all other vegetation had disappeared, when the fine jerkins of green leather which covered the trunks of the old trees were hidden beneath the snow, after the snow had ceased to fall, but when the sky was still too much overcast for me to hope that Gilbert would venture out, then suddenly, inspiring my mother to say, Look, it's quite fine now. I think you might perhaps try going to the Champs-Élysées after all. 
on the mantle of snow that swathed the balcony, the sun had appeared and was stitching seams of gold with embroidered patches of dark shadow. That day we found no one there, or else a solitary girl on the point of departure, who assured me that Gilberte was not coming. The chairs, deserted by the imposing but uninspiring company of governesses, stood empty. Only, near the grass, was sitting a lady of uncertain age, who came in all weathers, dressed always in an identical style, splendid and sombre, to make whose acquaintance I would have, at that period, sacrificed, had it lain in my power, all the greatest opportunities in my life to come. For Gilberte went up every day to speak to her. She used to ask Gilberte for news of her dearest mother, and it struck me that, if I had known her, I should have been for Gilberte someone wholly different, someone who knew people in her parents' world while her grandchildren played together at a little distance. She would sit and read the débat, which she called My Old Débat, as, with an aristocratic familiarity, she would say, speaking of the police sergeant, or the woman who let the chairs, My old friend the police sergeant, or the chairkeeper and I, who are old friends. End of section 28